Hello, this is Dylan Moore with Irita TV with our guest today, the Dr. E. Michael Jones, author of Culture Wars and the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And I wanted to have Dr. Jones on today because whenever I listen to you, Dr. Jones, I always get this, I feel like you have this unique ability to zoom in on some historical event in time or uh, place and not only provide a unique perspective, but provide all sorts of details of people and events that I just had no idea that was going on. And, you know, whenever I, whenever I listen to one of your one of your shows, I walk away going, man, I not only have I never thought about that, but that completely changes my perspective on, on what's going on today. So first and foremost, I'd like, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to, to be on with us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> it makes me feel my life has been worth something. Good. These years. Good. No, I, I mean, it's uh, I. I whenever a show shows up in one of my social media feeds from you, I'm, I'm, I'm there listening because I'm like, well, what's the thing that I haven't heard about before today in this thing that I already thought I knew about? So uh, I wanted to have Dr. Jones on today uh, for the topic of Western civilization because I don't think it's, it's a great stretch of the imagination for any of us in the West to say that we're kind of in the middle of a crisis. Right. And if we're going to get ourselves through this crisis... I think it's important for us to define or, or get a better idea of who we are as the West, because I, I don't, I'm sure you're aware the, uh, the historical training that you may have received is not necessarily the historical training I received a couple generations later. Um, we don't have a clear idea of, of what the West is or where it came from or anything like that, at least in, in the schools that I went to. And it was right. uh, from self-training that, that I started to get an idea. Right. And so right. what, what I'd like to start with is, could you give us an idea based on, obviously this is coming from you, um, what you see as the beginning time and place of the West, and what are the unique qu qualities that make the West different from any other civilization? The, uh, the, the West uh, began in Greece uh, with uh, um, a number of uh, uh, what we would call physicists today, Physiologoi is the word they used, uh, who were living on the uh, on the coast of what is now Turkey, in what is then known as Ionia, and they uh, after a, a catastrophic uh, collapse of civilization in the uh, east in the Mediterranean, in this area, they slowly made their way back, and the first manifestation of this comeback was. Uh, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey being written down. So now we had a written language uh, which had disappeared with the collapse of civilization. And now people started speculating again about the world that they lived in. And these met where men were physicists. And so they looked at uh, nature. And but the important thing is that they tried to come up with some type of common denominator for what they saw. And we can look around. There are all different things out there. But we all have a sense that there's some type of unity involved here. It's not just one damn thing after another. It's not just dislocated events or whatever. There seems to be a unity here. And so they first, Thales was the first man who came up, thought it was water. You know, water, you need water to survive and so on and so forth. Uh, that was his first attempt. Then we had Anaxagoras saying that it was air. And that made sense because air is all around us. And you need air to breathe. And when you breathe it in and you breathe it out, it, it has a, a human, it's like spirit, which is a, another, pneuma was the Greek word. 
And that has meaning. So there's more meaning. It's just not just air. There's a meaning to this thing. And then we had uh, Heraclitus, who we know did live uh, in uh, Ephesus, uh, what was later Ephesus. And um, he was influenced by Persian culture. The Persians were ruling that part of the world. He was a Greek citizen in a Persian culture. And Persians were Zoroastrians, and they worshipped fire. And this made an impression on Heraclitus, and he said, uh, everything's fire. Now, by fire, he probably meant energy. And so there are lots of physicists now who talk about energy and matter and the convertibility of energy and matter. And he was on to that in a way that was significant, even though he couldn't pursue it because he simply didn't have the physical, the instruments to pursue it. But if you look at a, a, a flame or a river, what you see is the flame is always changing and it's always the same. And suddenly now you're coming to a, a crucial principle that would later find manifestations in discussions of beauty. Uh, because being in many ways is always changing and it's always the same. It's existence and it's essence. Now, those are terms that came a long time afterwards, somebody like Thomas Aquinas, but they were latent here in what Heraclitus was saying. And he said, also had a lot to say about logos. And this is the word logos, where it finally emerges. And the significance is because now the unity is not something material. We had to go beyond materialism in order to have a proper understanding of the universe. And Heraclitus is, if not the first, then certainly one of the first people to do this. And that is the emergence of logos. And I'm saying that logos is the basis of the West because it developed, it came out of simply examining the world. If you the, the, the mass today, the reading was from the Book of Wisdom, and it said basically, if you look at the world, you'll be able, it's beautiful, uh, but if you look beyond it, you'll be able to understand the creator of, of this world, and that there was a plan for this world, and this was the beginning. They did it all on their own. I mean, these Greeks, without the benefit of revelation. Now, at the same time, uh, we have the Hebrews, uh, and they are a completely different situation. They have a, a language that is very concrete. It is not analytic like the Greek language, uh, but they have revelation, and specifically they have Moses. Now, this is going back to the time of the collapse, uh, so we're about, about 1200 B.C., and Moses uh, is instructed by God himself. God talks to Moses face to face, and he's, his face is so... Uh, uh, flaming, so illuminated by it, he has to cover it with a veil because people would be blinded by it. And so Moses, God tells Moses, you have to lead the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. And he said, well, that's, that's a big job. Uh, who should I say sent me? And he, God said, Yahweh said, I am who am. That's being. God is self-subsistent being. Now, I have said uh, in Logos Rising, I don't think, I don't think Moses understood that. I don't think anybody understood it. Uh, certainly the Hebrews didn't understand it. If uh, Their uh, uh, behavior afterwards is some type of basis for that judgment. <laughs> but it was, it was the beginning of a, a convergence. Okay, so you have Moses, you have uh, Heraclitus, and finally you have St. John, uh, uh, the beloved disciple. He's in Ephesus with the Blessed Mother, and Ephesus is full of idol worshipers, 
And St. Paul shows up and St. Paul has a dream and there's some kid beckoning across from the Aegean. So St. Paul goes to uh, Greece because the, the Jews won't let him preach in the synagogue anymore. And he goes to Greece and he goes to the Areopagus, which is a group of Greek philosophers, the heirs of Heraclitus and then Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And he gives the wrong speech. He gives he gives the silversmith speech that he should have given in Ephesus, but he gives it to Greek philosophers, and they're not interested in this. And they can't, you, suddenly you have a, a problem of how do you communicate this gospel to people who don't know who, don't really have any interest in the Hebrews. They don't know what these genealogies are all about, like the one that begins the gospel of Matthew. And I think the man who understood this failure was St. John. Uh, now we got a new situation. Now you got a new group of people, and he's writing in Greek, and so he begins the gospel, his gospel, with a, a mirror, kind of like the, the, the mirror image or extension of Genesis, which says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And St. John says, in the beginning, there was logos, that word. He took that word and the tradition that went along with it, which is God's way of saying this was a valid attempt and reason has its own claim on reality and access to being. He validated what the Greeks did and then joined it with the Hebrew scriptures, and that's called Christianity, and that became the foundation of what we call the West. Okay, so it's this openness to reason, this openness to logos as the universal basis for what we are as human beings that I think characterizes the West. So... What we're looking at here is, you know, going back to the, basically the Bronze Age collapse of, of roughly 1200 BC, right? Of you've got these two forces co that coming together, one from the shores of Ionia, like you said, the the original Greeks that um, start working through and get to the concept of logos, where um, and at the same time you've got the Israelites that uh, you know maybe we can argue is a more Canaanite uh, based origin that. Um, they get this revelation and they come in and they mix and they intertwine. And from that arises the basis for the West. Right. 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 And then this is also we, we left out the fact that uh, Aristotle's pupil was uh, Alexander the Great. Wasn't interested in philosophy, was interested in conquering the world, which he did uh, because philosophy had reached an impasse. He, Alexander couldn't have taken philosophy forward anyway, because we had to wait till St. John did what he did before philosophy could move forward. So he, I'll conquer the world. He did conquer the world, and that led to the spread of Greek as the lingua franca in the mm -hmm. ancient world. And that was important. I'm saying I, I've, I was on a, a, a conference, an internet conference with the Iranians, and I said, we're in a similar situation now with the collapse of the slow decline of the American empire. It, 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 all empires will go, they rise, and then they decline because they're natural uh, beings, and that's what natural beings do. This is what Vico said. But what they leave behind is Logos. And so the, the legacy of Alexander the Great is the Greek language. The legacy of the Roman Empire is the Latin language. And when that collapsed, that language spread to Europe, and now it was infused with Christianity, Christianity combined with the Latin language, and it spread throughout Europe. That became the lingua franca and the religion and the philosophy that united all of those warring uh, Germanic tribes 
who are my ancestors. And now they can get along with each other on a relative basis. I mean, you know, there's always going to be strife in this world, but they could get along with each other because they had a common language and a common religion and a common philosophy. And that's the rise of the West. That's what happened there. Got it. So when, when we've, we've got this stuff coming out of Greece, can you connect it to Rome a little bit for me? Because we, we have the original Christians, you know, say from first century AD to fourth century AD being heavily, heavily persecuted by the Roman Empire before it collapses. So can you give us a little idea as well of how did that transfer finally, ha <coughs> excuse me, how did that transfer finally happen where, you know, um, the Christians go from persecuted to being the the main philosophy of, of the entire civilization. Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, the, the, the Romans were not uh, on an intellectual level with the Greeks, but they did have the ability to organize an empire. Uh, and so they, what, what you saw over the course of the empire, the rise of the empire means the decline of local sovereignty and local, yeah, let's say just say local sovereignty. Same thing that happened in America, same thing right now. We have the empire. After World War II, the United States became an empire, and their desire was to project power outward so they could rule the world, and that meant the suppression of any type of local culture. That's what happened after World War II. Okay, the destruction of Catholic ethnic neighborhoods, which I described in uh, Slaughter of Cities. Uh, um, uh, the, the collapse of representative government, which is the main problem facing us right now. We are ruled by oligarchs and money. The rise of usury, the rise of slavery and usury, the same thing that's happening uh, uh, right now. Okay? Uh, and so the people became disenchanted. Uh, exactly what happened in Rome. Well, what is this big operation? Well, they want taxes and they want soldiers. And that's pretty much it. So the era, the era of uh, Kiwis Romana Sum as some type of proud boast didn't mean anything anymore. Didn't mean anything. And so the vacuum was filled by Christian communities mm. because now you had an identity as part of a, a religious identity that was much more powerful than this worship of gods that nobody really believed in because, I mean, what, what's the pantheon? We're just going to check all the boxes here. We don't believe in any one of them, so we'll make it up by having all of them there at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. That Christianity filled that vacuum because, it, first of all, it had a much more powerful un understanding of Logos. And secondly, it had an actual community, an actual community of people that you could belong to that would help you out in times of need in a way the empire simply did not do anymore. Okay. Well and then uh, I'm glad you brought up the um, usury because that was one of the things I, I wanted to talk to you about as well. So one of the things as I've engaged in my own historical journey, I should say, after after graduating from from school and university because I had to train myself, is that there, there was always this mystery of of usury and, and whether or not, you know, the, the, the way it was always sold to me was whether or not interest should be charged on money, which always seemed to me to be a, a very oversimplified description of the problem. And it occurred to me some years ago through, through reading various you know, historical books is that usury used to mean that if you didn't pay your debt, you became a slave to pay it back. Right. And in it's, it's kind of a, a modern day um, 
amazing tool that we even have the concept such as such as bankruptcy right where you go okay i can't i can't right. pay my debt anymore and so uh sorry i, I get my own little personal mini jubilee right, right? so <clears throat> could you talk a little bit more about usury and then uh, just what is it what was the problem and, and you know i think a lot of the problem had to do with with you know manipulation of of, of interest rates in order to get you to become my slave right and and how did that uh, evolve and direct Western civilization? Usury is always, the, the sequel to usury is always the concentration of wealth into very few hands. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly what happened now. So in the, in the Republic, you had uh, farmers, independent farmers uh, of the sort that impressed the hell out of Thomas Jefferson. And he wanted to have uh, a country. They were very influenced by the Roman Republic here, the founding fathers of mm -hmm. the United States of America. So you have all these farmers. They all have independent income. They don't need other people. They don't live in cities. And they can raise a militia in a time of war. And this is the model. Well, that was the Roman uh, Republic. And the soldiers uh, were drawn from this uh, agricultural aristocracy, you might call it. Uh, but the more you fought, uh, the, the, the more burden you put on these people who are already overburdened, like the Cincinnatus crowd, you know, who would go back to their farm after the war and beat their swords into plowshares and so on and so forth. Well, if you have constant war and you're constantly, well, they can't go back to the farm anymore. And so as a result, they lose the farm. And so you lose the farm. And what comes about is the rise of the latifundia, which are these huge agricultural estates that are tended by slaves who used to be landowners and became bankrupted by becoming soldiers. And now uh, once you have that con uh, uh, concentration of wealth, then uh, what's that man going to do with all of that money? Well, he's going to lend it out at interest. And so as a result, you have a, a vicious, a completely vicious circle where the people that have the money lend it out at interest uh, to the people who don't because they're not being paid a decent wage. And those people go deeper and deeper into bondage through debt. And the guy gets richer and richer at the top. Well, guess what? That's the American empire as well. That's the situation right now. And so what we have here is oligarchs uh, drunk with power because of all the victories they've achieved, who want to now finish off uh, the last, destroy the last remnants of representative government in the United States. And the vehicle for that is the COVID, this manufactured right. uh, COVID, which is basically biowarfare on the entire human race to destroy what is left of representative government and turn the entire world into the slavery that was the, the hallmark of the Roman Empire. Right. And then <clears throat> I might be splitting hairs when, when I when I talk about this um, in terms of usury, because I, I'm, a, I'm a math guy. I, I graduated with with a with a major in chemistry and I, I always like to zoom in and and geek out a little bit with math. When you look at interest rates and you look at, let's say, you know, I, I loan you money. If I loan you money at two percent, you're probably not going to go into debt bondage. If I loan you money at 30%, there's a pretty good chance you're going to go into debt bondage. Does 
from from your perspective is is usury that the problem of usury the fact that you've you've taken any interest at all on on this lending money or you've you've dialed it in just the right way where you say okay i i know the math better than you do and i know that you're not going to realize that you can't pay this back and so i'm i'm going to get you to sign this knowing that you're not going to be able to pay this back cuz you don't understand interest rates like i do yeah well the country has tried to tame usury so Vix Pervain at the teaching of the church says any any interest on loan is usurious. Now that sounds awful. Yeah, that, that, could, exactly. That's what I wanted that to hear about. That's what, that's what I want to hear about. That sounds unreasonable. Yeah. What the hell are you talking about? And then you add into the equation the uh, the fact that if, if inflation, so if inflation's at 5%, it's become a new a problem recently, mm-hmm. uh, but you're borrowing at 2%, well then is that usurious? Well, it's probably not. Probably not because you're simply keeping even, trying to keep even with the debasement of the currency. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the key, the key to understanding this, I think, is not. Uh, inter- Why did he say all interest, any interest on a loan? That's what because I want to know. <laughs> any, any interest, any interest on a loan, because of the nature of compound interest, will eventually become unrepayable, and that's based if, uh, on the the. Uh, the exponential curve mm-hmm. that is intrinsic to a, uh, a compound interest. So the best example historically that I can give you would be the relationship between the Fugger family, who were the bankers right. of Europe at that time, and the Habsburg uh, family, who were the uh, ruled the Holy Roman Empire at that time. So the Fuggers prided themselves on never charging more than 6%. And this was in many ways unheard of. Now, 6% with that lending to the Habsburgs. Uh, this was unheard of because at that point, the, the Jew uh, got 43 and a third percent per annum. That was kind of like the standard rate, unless you were special and then they cut down the rate. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if you're some just poor slob, you'll pay 43 and a third percent interest. Now, uh, what happened over this time? Uh, they first, I believe the first loan, it's in Baron Metal, my book on economics, but I think it's 1494, the Fuggers make their first loan to the Habsburgs. Now, this is two years after the discovery of America, and within a number of years, the Habsburgs take over, they become the owners of every single gold and silver mine in the New World. Right. Well, that's money. I mean, we're talking about serious money. The only problem would be English pirates who were stealing a lot of it, but the money poured into the treasury uh, of the Habsburgs treasury in Spain, since the Habsburgs ruled Spain. And so what do we find out in 15, let's, I think it's 1560, I believe, the Habsburg family goes bankrupt. How can you go bankrupt if you own every gold and silver mine in the new world, the answer is interest the exponential curve <laughs> yep. on a floating loan. Yeah. So at a certain, and generally it's around 70 years. Okay. Once you kick into 70 years, I don't care what the interest rate is. The, 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 the curve shoots up and it's unrepayable. Something similar happened in England after the founding of the, the uh, bank of England. I believe that was 1692. And they started loaning money, lending money to uh, uh, Billy the Dutchman, King William. And uh, it, that came due in about 70 years. It became unrepayable in about 70 years. And Adam Smith, Lord Townsend, goes to Adam Smith and said, what are we going to do? I mean, here's the foremost economist in England. 
And he says, well, make the colonies pay for it. And that led to the Stamp Act, 1763, and that led to the American Revolution, right. which is the only, the only way you can deal with a floating loan is a revolution or, as you pointed out, you have to have liberal bankruptcy laws. I have, I have a friend who's a quant on Wall Street, and he said liberal bankruptcy laws are the only thing to keep the American economic system going. Now, if you're a big deal, a big shot from New York, like Donald Trump, uh, you can go bankrupt uh, any number of times. He's going back. He's declared bankruptcy three times. Right. If you're some poor slob of a student and you got a student loan, forget it. You are going to be ground into dust because you cannot dare declare bankruptcy on a student loan. Well, and thank you for bringing that up because student loans are obviously different from every other type of loan, right? Because you can't bank you can't go bankrupt out of it. And then I, I've also been hearing, seeing news articles and stuff like people are getting, and you can maybe can corroborate whether this is true or not. Like you can't get a driver's license in some states if you, if you have if you're delinquent on a student loan, and. If this is a new form of debtor's prison. It, that, that's and, exactly and, what and I wanted to get at. The, yes. The only reason the only reason you can't declare bankruptcy on a student loan is because students have no political power. That's all that the, the solution to bankruptcy throughout history for the prince is basically this is what happens to the Medici. You lend to the princes because they always need money. And then the prince in certain says, oh, you want to collect? What kind of army do you have? Right. And the answer to that was the, the people who came up with the solution to that were the English. And it wasn't the English army. It was the English Navy, which was basically a debt collecting agency. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you didn't pay off your debts, they would send the English Navy and they come in and they destroy you. They bombard your ports. This is why the English Navy is Leviathan. Leviathan is a sea monster. Right. The Japanese had a word for it. They called it Godzilla. They made a movie about it, about the sea monster that came. It was a combination of the American, the American Navy, basically. It was a successor to the British Navy. And that's what destroyed you. So that's, that's what you had to have if you wanted to collect debts. That's what it was. And students don't have armies in general. And, so and they, they don't have prospects because they didn't learn anything in college. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's a, it's a, a complete train wreck here right uh, uh, uh which we could we could also talk about the ridiculous parlous terrible state of higher education the takeover of higher education by the same group of people who uh are the usurers and the fact that all of these poor kids got caught in that trap because nobody warned them about it i do want to talk about that but let's lead up to it so we uh, thank you for giving that that's a very clear um view of, of of usury can we take a step back and kind of look at the the expanse of the west again and talk about this okay how did this pressure go because you know as as someone who who grew up in a usurious culture right and i say right. okay you know uh, okay well if i want a car i get a loan if i want a house i get a loan and that's that's just the way it is right my my first gut reaction is to say well if we're if we're people or banks or whatever aren't going to make these loans of interest, how is this economic development supposed to happen? Now, obviously, there's there's an answer to that. And I'm sure that, that that's been <laughs> part of the fight in Western civilization going back and forth over whether, you know, it's it's okay to, to um, collect interest on on lending. 
And I wanted to hear your point about that of, okay, well, how, how was economic development supposed to happen? And what was the argument from the people arguing against usury for that? Right. Yeah. Well, the crisis, the crisis in manufacturing came in the early 20th century when uh, the famous uh, tycoon, Wall Street tycoon died. What was this guy's name? Why am I not blanking out? J.P. Morgan? The famous, yeah, J.P. Morgan yeah. died. He was the guy who could bring all the banks together whenever there was a run on the bank, and he could come up with enough capital uh, to basically stop the run on the bank and save the system. Okay, that was always the problem, always loans getting overextended, and suddenly nobody can pay them back, and the bank goes bust. In order to... So he's dead. Nobody can do it. And they create the Fed. Right. The Federal Reserve System as the alternative, the substitute, the replacement. for. There's always uh, reserves available because they just create them. Yes. Right. Right. JP is the alternative successor to JP Morgan. Now, at this point, there was a survey in 1910 of uh, manufacturing, which was largely uh, domestic manufacturing, a lot of it in the Midwest. And they found that 90% of all capital improvement were made from profits internal to the company. Well, that was uh, the solution to the problem. Okay, that's one solution to the problem. There's stock. Okay, you can buy stock in a company. uh, And that is not usurious for the fundamental reason is that you're sharing risk. There is no shared risk in a loan. All of the burden is on the borrower. Okay, that's immoral and that's unjust and that's part of the problem with usury. But what if I default on it? Don't you accept some risk if I default? I said there's no shared risk. You can default, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, you borrow the money, uh, you own a farm, you default, the bank takes your farm. I see. The bank does not share. So wait a minute. Stop. Stop. I had a bad year last year. We had a hailstorm. I see what you're saying. I follow. And, and yep. It des- yep. It destroyed my entire crop. But I'm coming back and I, I, I need a little bit of extension. The bank says, tough nah. luck, buddy. Yep. I, I follow. I follow I'm you. Not yep. sure. if, if, if the farm were a corporation, then you'd say, okay, folks, there's no dividend this year because we had a hailstorm. And you'd have to say, okay, I shared the risk. I'll, I'll make it up next year. There is no shared risk in a loan. And so that's why it's bad. And so this becomes a mechanism because of the business cycle, because the debt piles up, the, the system crashes, and then these people come in. And buy it up cheap. Buy it up pennies <laughs> yep. on the dollar. Yep. Pennies on the dollar. And that's how they amass their, their huge uh, fortunes. So the crucial issue then, so at this point, Oh, wait a minute. Wall Street does not like the fact that these corporations are making capital improvements from internal sources, from internal profits. They, they want to go and say, look, you need to really think big. You need to think big. Don't just do this petty ante crap here. Build an entire new plant, blah, 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 blah. And they convince you to go into debt. And then suddenly, when the business cycle goes bad, they end up owning your factory and you're out on the on your own. That was a crucial turning point in American history because the government turned from labor to usury, the two mm. options in economic history. And they became capitalism is state-sponsored usury. And that's what it is now. And that's what it's always been. Fascinating. Thank you for, for that clarification. Um, 
I'm deciding which which direction I wanted to go because you brought up the academics. In fact, l- l- let's go there. So, so you you were mentioning that the the current state of academia is uh, in its current state because of the same people who, who are doing the usury. Can we, similar to what we did before, what was the original purpose of academia, and what has it turned into in the West? Oh, uh, academe comes from the Greek. It was basically Plato walking around discussing people. The peripatetic school, they'd walk around and talk about big ideas. And then you had the collapse. The Greek academy continued for a long time into, I think, 600. And it went to Persia uh, after that. Uh, but uh, everything collapsed again in civil uh, in Europe. And you had the Dark Ages where basically everybody hunkered down because of the barbarian invasions, the Vikings on the north, the Saracens in the south. And they built fortresses and that created in order to protect yourself, you had to become a serf. And so you're back heading in that direction. Mm -hmm. But because of Christianity, the serf had rights that he didn't have in as a slave in Rome. And so as a result, this meant property rights and they started to establish property rights and cities began to come into being. And Paris in the 13th century, suddenly it all came together and you had the university where Thomas Aquinas and the Dominicans would discuss uh, Aristotle. That's basically what it was. Uh, In other words, the resurrection of Greek learning. And that led to, you know, the flowering of Western Europe. In my recent, the book that I I just finished on uh, beauty, uh, which is a crucial thing, a crucial aspect because it's a transcendental and it's uh, truth, the good and, and, and the the beautiful are three aspects of being, uh, which was also talked about in the book of wisdom today, uh, talked about beauty. Uh, 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 we had a revolution in the fine arts at this point because Giotto understood what Aquinas was saying about being. It's a different world now. This is a world with a creator. A creator is by definition an artist and the universe is a great work of art. And if you study that work of art, you can come up with some type of understanding Hmm. of of logos, but also beauty. And so you had uh, under the Greek, let's say Plato, what is art? You have forms. Okay. Let's say a triangle, a circle, uh, a square, uh, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And you impose that on nature which is matter, which is completely chaotic and completely formless. Let's say a block of stone. You put those four, three geometrical figures into stone. You put them on top of each other and you have a Greek temple. Right. Okay. And that is where you worship the Logos because that is the manifestation of Logos in in matter. Mm -hmm. Well, by the time uh, you have a creator, you don't think of matter anymore as simply this inert thing. It's the universe which is created by God, which has its own Logos, which the, the Book of Wisdom talked about. And so all you have to do is imitate nature. And you break with this platonic idea of imposing. Now you study nature, you look at nature, and this is precisely what Giotto did. He broke with the Greek models, which are the icon, where the background is simply gold, and he put a, a, a landscape behind it. And suddenly you had this power, suddenly more, this art had more power, psychological power, and I go into that, uh, into the book. That was com- contemporaneous with 
the rise of the university, and that's contemporaneous with the rise of science. Because it was basically the first scientist in Europe was Thomas Aquinas' mentor, Albertus Magnus, who did a lot of studying of the natural things. Because, because Christianity was such a powerful revelation that for basically thousand years, all, all we did, all they did was speculate on scripture. Right. Let's talk about scripture. And so Augustine, in his book, uh, The City of God, said, uh, salamanders live in fire. Now, he didn't quite put it that way. He said, there are some people who say that salamanders live in fire. And he says, and then he went on to talk about how purgatory was something like salamanders living in fire. Mm. Why, did, why did people think that salamanders lived in fire? Because they never checked. <laughs> well, because someone said it. Some, right. Greek, some Greek said it. So why did he say it? Well, probably because if you take a log, a rotting log, in from the forest and throw it on the fireplace, there's a chance that the salamander's living in that log. And the heat gets out, and suddenly the salamander pops up out of the log, and he's running around in the fire, and he's thinking, oh, salamanders live in fire. Now, that was a function of the fact that nobody really did empirical investigation right. mm -hmm. until you had somebody like uh, Albertus Magnus. Uh, that was a, a tremendous breakthrough at the same time that Aquinas basically solved the Muslim problem which was basically this conflict, you know, Aristotle or Aristotle said the world's eternal. The Quran says it's created in time. Averroes says they're both true. And Aquinas says, no, <laughs> that's impossible. And he cuts the log jam. And so Father Yaki said science began in 1277 in Paris when Bishop Tampier condemned Averroism. You can't have two truths. Mm -hmm. So you've got this strong metaphysical foundation you got people like uh, Albertus Magnus looking into the situation, just looking at nature qua nature, because nature is created by God. And so there's going to be the mind of God. There's going to be a logos there. You just have to look at it long enough to figure it out. And maybe you'll be helped if you have a microscope or a telescope. That might help, too. And so that's the beginning. That's how science evolved. Now, this is the university. Right. So okay? I would go to the university to to learn and contribute and experience these sorts of things that you just described. Right. Yes. And, and you, and uh, I don't want to side. Uh, so science developed and science, but by, by the 16th century was the rage all over the place. And the main proponent of the scientific method was Descartes. Mm. And, and so Vico is an Italian is living in Naples and he's a confirmed Cartesian. And he realized, wait a minute, this is a kind of uh, a denatured universe that you're talking about here. It's pretty impoverished compared to the world that we actually live in and compared to history. As a matter of fact, this has nothing to do with history whatsoever. That, si that universe you're proposing is simply balls rolling around the surface. <laughs> Whether you want to call them planets or atoms, and there's no history there. There's no history to... The earth going around, it's always the same thing over and over again. And so Vico broke with it. He restored humanistic studies. And the Germans who came down from uh, uh, Germany uh, to visit Naples took it over and they ran with it and they created humanistic studies, uh, linguistics, if you want to call it that, humanistic uh, anthropology, uh, the study of literature was a German thing. The Grimm brothers going off and studying these German folktales. And that led eventually to the rise 
of literary criticism. And I am a product of literary criticism. When I was in high school, it was something to do. It was serious. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the main uh, uh, manifestation of it was called the New Criticism. And the New Criticism was Christian, it was Protestant. New Criticism was basically sola scriptura applied not to the Bible the way the Protestants did, but to a poem, any poem. Just a close examination. So, of so, the text. and let me, and maybe you're about to say this, but what you're saying is, what instead of looking at the context in which the, for example, a poem is 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 brought into, you're just looking at the poem, and that's it in its entirety. Right. That's what yeah. new criticism was. Uh, it was uh, uh, okay. You have to look. The basis of anything is going to have to be a close reading. Now, if you limit yourself to that, it's going to be a little bit fragile and it's going to be a little bit artificial. And that's what happened to the new criticism. It could have matured. Uh, and in a sense, I'm a manifestation of what it could have become. All mm. of my writing isn't has been influenced by that. But obviously, I've gone way beyond just explicating little poems based on close textual analysis. Because you can bring the whole world into your analysis, I'm, but I'm still doing analysis of literature in a sense. Uh, the latest issue of, of Culture Wars, uh, it's an analysis of a, a, pl- a, 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 a movie. Uh, I, I do it. I do it a lot. You can learn a lot, and in many ways, it goes all the way back to Vico, because these are manifestations of the human mind, and you can learn something by doing. It. So that's fine. We have new criticism. And new, as I said, new criticism is Christian. It's a Christian basis. And the, the, the chief guys who are responsible for the spread of this, okay, begins with Coleridge, who studied with the Germans, went to Germany, was the main promoter of German thought in England at the, in the 19th century. And then it got picked up by people like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. And that became uh, the other revolution in language, like the Romantic Revolution. Now, at this point, politics intervened, and I'm talking specifically about World War II. Mm. And Ezra Pound got involved. Ezra Pound hated usury. God bless him. He hated usury, and there are cantos uh, written against usury. Because he hated usury, he hated capitalism. Because he hated capitalism, he decided that Mussolini was the answer. And so he went to Italy, and he broadcast uh, programs attacking usury and supporting Mussolini. Then America lost, uh, I'm sorry, the Axis powers lost the war. And at this point, we have the rise of the group that we're talking about here. The, the, the Jews played a crucial role as propaganda uh, propagandists during World War II and after World War II because they controlled Hollywood. Hollywood is in many ways the propaganda minister. Right. And so they began, because of that, they increased in political power. The more they increased in political power, the more they wanted to take over institutions. And one of the institutions they wanted to take over was the university. And so it came down to a battle over two groups in literary criticism, the Christians and the Jews. The Christians, the new criticism, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound was the crucial figure, and then it was the Jews. The, the, the new critics said, no, what, it doesn't matter what your politics are. Is, a, is it a good poem? Can you write good poetry? That's the only thing that counts. It's the artifact. The Jews came along and said, no, no. 
your poem is only good if it fits our political agenda. And that led directly to political correctness, and the battle came was over Ezra Pound. Okay, are we going to rehabilitate Ezra Pound or not? And why was there when the battle took place? Hugh Kenner wrote the last defense of Ezra Pound. It was called the Pound Era. It came out in 72, which is when I was in graduate school. And that was it. Uh, the, the Jews defeated that attempt. They, they hated, I was, Stanley Fish was my teacher. He was at a new dance craze called reader response criticism, which made no sense whatsoever. And I said that in my first published article, which appeared in College English uh, from a paper I wrote in his class. But I, in that class, you could tell Stanley Fish absolutely hated the new criticism in a way that I found surprising because I wasn't factoring in the fact that he was Jewish. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of it at that point. But now it sort of makes sense. And so you had that takeover and the destruction of literary criticism to the point where it is a, a non-existent force in academe today. Fascinating. So if we look at the university as a, a instrument or an institution that's, that's supposed to accomplish a certain thing, Right. And we, we go back to, say, uh, 13th century or 1300s, where, where this first st starts out. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an up and coming young man and I decide I want to go to the university. And, and from that, I'm going to be able to contribute to the civilization from the things that I've learned. How would you compare what gets churned out of a university in the 1300s versus what gets churned out of a university today and how that impacts <laughs> how that Im impacts the receiving civilization? Well, uh, in the 13th century, you went to the university if you were a monk. Mm. It was basically, uh, it was, uh, a, a, you know, a clerical institution. Well, that's what it was in America. That's what Harvard was. Uh, it was to train Protestant ministers. Interesting. So that's what, it, that's what it was. And in order to become a minister, well, you had to know Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Well, that's great because that is gives you access to the mainstream of of uh, literature of of Western civilization, right? Of lo logos, right? Okay, that's that's these are the languages of logos. Okay, so over the 19th century, uh, what you had was tremendous technological progress. Uh, 1830 uh, was when uh, Goethe died in 1830 and Hegel died in 1831, and that was the last gasp of uh, geist, to use the German mm -hmm. word, of spirit uh, in the university. And what followed was materialism, largely because of um, technological progress and largely because uh, the English were the cutting edge of civilization. The English, the British Empire, ruled the world. Britannia ruled the waves. They certainly influenced American thought. And so as a result, this was simply kept away. And so it gradually degenerated into forms of materialism. Karl Marx uh, was a dialectical materialist. That's right. a contradiction in terms. You cannot be a dialectical materialist because matter does not move, okay? Or it doesn't move dialectically. Only thought moves, only Geist moves dialectically. And so, but anyway, he obviously had a big influence with the rise of communism. And uh, over the course of this, the 19th century, the, the Harvard became a German university. It was it was not English. It was not like uh, Cambridge or Oxford. It was German. 
Yale uh, Skull and Bones has a, a German motto on the wall. It shows you the, the influence. Fraternities are a German idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is all the influence of German culture here on the university. And guess what? America fought a war with, uh, with Germany uh, twice. England and America first twice. And this was a destruction of German thought. And it meant ultimately the destruction of the university. Because then the Americans have to go, well, we're, we're just as smart as they are. We'll come up with our own ideas. How about pragmatism? How about John Dewey? He's a great thinker. Right. He came up with the Dewey Decimal System. Well, no, I'm sorry. And that, as I said, now this is, I cover in Logos Rising, but basically it did come down to a confrontation in the 1930s at the University of Chicago. Okay, Dewey is a faculty member there. I think he was still there. He eventually went on to Columbia, but I think he was still there at that time. If not, his influence was there. And uh, Mortimer Adler and uh, Robert Hutchins decided this is crap. Americans don't have a culture. They're too young. They're not smart enough to come up with a philosophy. Pragmatism is stupid. Pache, Mr. Dewey. Uh, So we'll bring in the only real philosophy around, which is Thomism. Mortimer Adler was a Jewish Thomist. They brought Jacques Maritain in. It came down to a big battle, and the Thomist lost. Because, again, uh, of American nativism, but also there was a Jewish element to this thing as well, because the main uh, hater of Catholic thought at the University of Chicago was Louis Wirth, the sociologist, who was also the architect of the ethnic cleansing of all of those Catholic parishes. So he, uh, that, that was part of the battle that went on there. At that point, the, the, uh, we had to fall back to the next ditch, and that was Catholic universities, and that was Notre Dame. And Notre Dame has always been an Americanist institution. They always want to create FBI agents and bean counters who will fit in rather than challenge. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they became embarrassed about the Thomism that was officially installed uh, after, uh, according to Nos- uh, uh, Eterni Patris, Leo XIII's encyclical, that became the official philosophy of the, Eng- of the philosophy department at Notre Dame in 53. And within 10 years, Hesburgh and his henchman, Erna McMullen, uh, an Irish priest who study with Erwin Schrodinger, had destroyed it, strangled Thomism in its cradle. Now, Logos cannot take this type of body blow uh, from its own people. And so as a result, you had the collapse of philosophy at Notre Dame. And that led to the collapse of the English department under the tutelage of Joe Budajic, the father of our illustrious gay uh, secretary of transportation. Our, our absentee secretary of transportation. <laughs> taking right. taking uh, his maternal is, leave while, on, while while we're in the middle of a cra- uh, yeah <laughs> sorry on maternity leave <laughs> yeah oh this is this is such a train wreck but I mean we could talk about that for a long time <laughs> by the way I talk about appropriation of intellectual property Pete Buttigieg knows who I am he lived two blo- two houses down the street from me grew up there and he's now saying the highways are racist well of course they are what else would they be. <laughs> I, I know what you're saying, Pete. I know what you're saying. What you're talking about is the creation of the interstate highway system in the 50s and where those roads went in cities. OK, it wasn't they weren't racist highways. They were anti-Catholic highways because 
those highways were part of the destruction of those ethnic neighborhoods. Now, the irony is that they led to the creation of black neighborhoods. Chicago, classic example. South side of Chicago, those highways led to the creation, the ethnic cleansing of uh, the south side of Chicago, and they all filled up with black people. So it, it wasn't that they excluded black uh, the highways cut off black people. The highways created black neighborhoods because they created the vacuum that was caused by the ethnic cleansing of the Catholics who lived there before the highway. I, I have never heard this this description of highways. Can you explain to me what uh, how the highways caused the ethnic cleansing of, of Catholics? Uh, yes, I can give you uh, I, the short answer to that is read the slaughter of cities, urban renewal as ethnic cleansing. Uh, the you can look at a place that go up to uh, basically where do, the highways were built with social engineering in mind. Mm -hmm. Highways are a form of social engineering. Highways, the the after World War II, you had uh, 11 million GIs returning to a country that was going to be completely different. Don't take my word. It's Gunnar Myrdal. It's in The American Dilemma. That book is supposed to be about race. It's really about social engineering. He uses the word social engineering repeatedly. So part of the social engineering means uh, we are going to create Levittowns. Levittown was the first suburb. We're going to create the suburbs. And in order to get there, you have to drive a car, which means mm. you have to buy a car. Which means you have to have a highway. Now, yeah. now you're talking about a, a, a form of control where basically you got to get into a car. You're spending all this time driving to work, driving home from work. When you get home from work, you go and sit in front of a television. And when you have an extended period of time, you go out and mow your lawn. So these are all forms of control that, well, what is what what was before that? Before that, you had the ethnic neighborhood and you had the Catholic parish. So what you had during this period of time was a concerted attempt to destroy Catholic infrastructure in the United States of America. It's in the book. I, I encourage everyone to read that book. It's a great book. I'm the only guy, I'm the first guy who ever talked about it in a rational fashion where it wasn't, uh, wasn't white flight, uh, Michelle. This is what Michelle Obama said. Y'all didn't want to talk to us. No, no, it wasn't that. It was ethnic cleansing. And the blacks were the proxy warriors of the oligarchs who drove the Catholics out of their neighborhoods into the suburbs. When you live in a city, mm, okay. you're Polish. When you live in the city, you're Irish. When you live in the city, you're German, and you go to one of those parishes. When you move to the suburbs, you're white. You become white, and you become deracinated. And that is, we could get into that whole thing about whiteness and all that other type of stuff. But this is all, they were all forms of social engineering. And Pete, in his perverted way, and I use that word, uh, I should emphasize that in his perverted <laughs> way, right. uh, has turned this upside down. He's turned it upside down. Those highways weren't racist. They were anti-Catholic. This is something Pete probably knew. He lived, he grew up two houses down the street from me. He knows who I am. He probably talked to his father. His father probably told him, never play with those Jones children. So <laughs> Pete became the classic uh, kitchen window child. Right. Um, I don't remember if we finished the, uh, the the answer to the to the university question. We got I got I got derailed by an interest okay. in, in, in okay, highways. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing leads to another here. So the university, I'm 
the university uh, was deprived of its soul because of the world wars, because the soul of the university here was German. Mm-hmm. It was basically the Germ- German scholarship was humanistic scholarship. And that humanism Science, co- connected everybody to, to, the, to the, uh, the flow in the past of the civilization because that was the emphasis of what they were learning. Right. right. Like Vico, Vico was the author of this new direction in education, and the Germans picked it up. The Italians didn't pick it up. The Germans picked it up. Mm-hmm. And they created basically humanistic studies over the course of the 19th century. And places like Harvard and Yale imitated German universities that did not imitate uh, Oxford and Cambridge, which was basically still uh, ossified. Thought died. Philosophy died in England with David Hume. Mm -hmm. And it was Kant that resurrected philosophy. And after Kant, philosophy was German. And you had these, you know, these ridiculous, you know, I, I, you know, logical positivism. Look at the class, classic example of this is Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, (laughs) the great English philosopher who ended up what, what, he was the guru. You're too young to remember this, but I remember people who would imitate Bertrand Russell at the university because they thought he was a great philosopher. He was not a great philosopher, and it came out, it's in Logos Rising, but a woman came up to him and said, you know, you did that book on, with Whitehead on uh, on language and, and uh, philosophical principles, the Principia, uh, and you seem to have produced nothing since that time. What happened? And he said, I found that I preferred fucking instead. <laughs> that's the whole story of Bertrand Russell. Yeah. But, but, but that's not the, it's not the whole story. The whole story of English philosophy is that it died and it didn't provide a model for anything. German philosophy had taken over by the 19th century. So if you have a war where you're demonizing Germans and you're, you're, you're pr- 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 giving privilege to the Jews who ran the propaganda ministry, you're going to destroy the university system. And that's what happened. And it took, uh, oh, uh, like 50 years after World War II before this whole thing uh, reached its final culmination with the, the train wreck that it is today. Exactly. Well, and then what would you say it's fair to say that when the, the um, German influence of the university was cut off, and essentially, like you mentioned, now we're losing the connection of of the history of the West because there's that cut. Now we're free to, to guide it in any direction that we want. And the direction well, that, and the direction that, that we want is what we're seeing today. The SJW well, Marxist uh, yeah, what, what, crap. What, 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 you, what became science became the, the criterion of everything. Well, what do you mean by science? That's what, what I, that was my question. By- yeah. What do you mean by science? You mean physics. You mean Newtonian physics. That's what you mean. So everything is going to be modeled on Newtonian physics. Well, that's a pretty impoverished model. I hate to tell you this, but it's pretty impoverished. The classic casualty of that was economics. Economics became pseudophysics. We've, we've that, talked about that, that on the show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah please continue. That, <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it is today. It's still pseudophysics. It is not the, the whole, the reason I wrote Baron Metal is to promote the thought of Heinrich Pesch, which is classical economics, which means it is based in moral philosophy mm-hmm. because it's choice. When you make a choice, you have to have some good in mind. 
That's all economics is ever going to be. And what you have now is uh, what what are we going to say? Tips for gamblers? Tips for gamblers. The Black-Scholes equation. What's that? That's a tip. Yeah, I, I see these things on TV. I, I have to when I lift weights, I have to watch TV. And now there's a whole group of shows on betting on sports. And we'll give you the hot tip for betting on sports. That's what economics has become. Right. That's what uh, the Black Scholes equation is. Well, it's not economics. That's betting. Right. That's gambling. Right. And so what you have is a big casino. And hey, wait a minute. The guys who run the casinos and the guys who run Wall Street, hey, it's the same group of people. It's Sheldon Adelson. It's Dan Gilbert. It's uh, Lloyd Blankfein, whoever took over there, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's the same group of people who don't understand labor. They don't because they've never worked. They don't work. Right. They only understand usury. They understand usury really well because that's what they did for all as far back as we certainly in Europe. That's all they did in Europe. They did not work. Okay, so you don't understand the value of labor. Well, and that actually leads me to uh, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is when I was learning history, I ran into this term often, which I'm sure will bristle your the your feathers, uh, Judeo-Christian. And right. I, I want to tell a story leading into this that I think you'll, you'll find amusing because it being taught that term Judeo-Christian and, and you know, that, that they say it in a way that that it, it makes sense. When you hear it, like, you know, that Judaism was kind of the, the runner up to Christianity and so that influenced Christianity. So it must be Judeo-Christian. Right. And it didn't really, really hit me until I had a conversation with a Jewish friend who is, uh, uh, strangely enough, a uh, Buddhist priest. And <laughs> I guess a uh, so many uh, Jewish uh, guys have become Buddhist priests that they joke about it. And they, right. call, they call themselves Jubu. <laughs> Jubu, that's right. There's a whole there's a whole Come. interview we could do on Jubu. Right? I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm amused that you, that you know what I'm talking about. So um, he, he we were we were at a Aikido party. That's how I know him. I, I do. We both do Aikido. And he was telling a story about uh, growing up and going to synagogue. And of course, uh, in synagogue on the the Sabbath, there's the 400 million weird rules that you're supposed to follow and then you hire a goyim to do them for you and he he, he was telling the story that when he was a kid he was confused and um i mean uh, first of all he mentioned that it's really important that when you hire this goyim that you don't thank him because if you thank him that means you made a deal and uh, you know i'm now i'm really scratching my head to go and i, I I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding what, what the heck what are you even talking about and he said me too so i asked my uncle and I said, Uncle, what's the point of having all these rules when we, you know, do all these weird things to get, you know, to, to, to kind of do them anyway and, and get around them and say that, that, that we, we followed the rule? And he said that his uncle's answer was, God made all these rules so that someone who is clever can figure out how to get around them. <laughs> and he said that's what they're for is to, to, is to determine who's clever and who isn't. And I, I mean, I'm just like stumbling backward, like what? Wow! And, and, this is this, uh, this is Talmudic. This exactly. Is Talmudic. So, so, and then to, to 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 wrap the story up, but my my friend says, and he, uh, the most the best compliment you could ever give a Jew is to call him clever. And and I I I just kept thinking about that, and I said that way of thinking is 
utterly anathema to anybody in the West to say, okay, God created these rules so you could figure out how, how, to, how to get around them, right? And to say it's, that we're Judeo-Christian when that's what, what, what the thinking of, of, of Judaism is, is just, I mean, it, anathema. I'll use that word again. It's just completely anathema. And, right. I, and, and I wanted to get, get, get your, uh, I'll, I'll just say, let me open it up like that because it sounded like you, you already knew where you were going to go with it. Yeah, well, it's also a completely immature uh, understanding of what rules are. Right. It's like, oh, it's we got this big guy, the big macher up to top, and he's got these rules, and you're going to push them on us, and we can't possibly follow them. They're all arbitrary. They don't make any sense. And in a sense, they don't make any sense. These, these Talmudic rules, they don't make any sense. Right. So, uh, but the, so, so, is that the way we understand uh, the moral law? No, it's not rules unless you're maybe you're when you're a teenager and you want to do certain things that the moral law prohibits and you don't understand anything. Yeah, it's just an it's against my freedom. No, the understanding of freedom is that it corresponds to the law, to, to your nature. Mm -hmm. So you're free to do what your nature demands. If you contradict your nature, that's slavery. You end up in slavery. And so that's exactly what my book about sexual liberation is. Liberation is held out to people because it's all just arbitrary rules. And you really want to do what you want to do. And you end up with a miserable life and you uh, and you don't know why. Well, because you're immature and you're too stupid. Or maybe you've got this Jewish idea of what rules are. <laughs> the, man, the, man, the man who said this was Heinrich Graetz, the great German Jew, who was the father of Jewish historiography, he said the only result uh, of studying the Talmud is teaching you how to cheat, how to cheat people and connive. And he said this was the downfall of Polish Jews. Well, I'd say it's the downfall of every Jew that follows the Talmud. But I mean, basically, that, that's even Heinrich Greitz had to admit that this is really stupid. Now, the conclusion is, do you want people like that? Making the rules for you? <laughs> no, no. But pe 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 like people that? who see rules as something to to just get around to make rules for you. Yeah, yeah. Do Do you want to? No, because they won't let you get around the rules. Mm. That's the difference. Because you're not uh, a, the a rabbi. Yeah, you're not. You're not part of the club. So we're going to hold you. You know what I mean? So it's like Obama's uh, birthday party on uh, <laughs> right. Uh, Martha's Vineyard, you know, where, hey, nobody's wearing masks. Oh, that's just for the Goyim. They're just to wear masks. And now we have Mr. Borla, who's the head of Pfizer, the big Jew who's head of Pfizer. It's criminal. Now, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. He's, he's yeah. working with the FBI. He wants to throw you in jail if you criticize him. Yep. So this is the, the dichotomy here. The, the Jew, when he's out of power, promotes all sorts of liberation movements. Then when the Jews get in power, as they did in the Soviet Union, they become the absolute tyrannical impo imposers of all these artificial Talmudic rules to keep you under control. So Pfizer is the new Cheka. Cheka was the extraordinary committee to combat terrorism and counter-revolution. was founded one month after the November 17 revolution. And what they have found was that... Uh, they had to spread terror throughout the population and that Russians were not really willing to torture other Russians, but Jews were. 
because mm. they looked at Russians, the Russian people, as alien, as goyim, as subhuman, and now they had some type of ideological justification for their ancestral hatreds. So, again, going back to the term Judeo-Christian, which is obviously a, a complete contradiction in terms, just from the story I, I, I told, but, uh, I mean, elaborated further by you. If we're not Judeo-Christian, I mean, obviously, you go, well, we're Christian, but, I mean, it sounds to me more like Greco-Christian would be a more accurate way to describe Western civilization. Would you agree with that? Oh, there is a Hebrew element to mm -hmm. Western civilization. It's undeniable. Okay? But the problem is the Jews are not Hebrews. Ah, yes. This is the problem. The Jews are in rebellion against the Hebrew heritage. This is, all comes out in the Gospel of St. John where Jesus Christ talks to, to the Jews. Jew, by the way, is a pejorative term in the Gospel of St. John. There's only one, it's used 71 times, and there's only one time when it's not pejorative. So at this point, what you're seeing is the Jews have become anti-Hebrew. Anti Jesus says, if you were, they, they say, we are children of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. Now, and Jesus said, well, wait a minute, there's a difference between being a seed and a child. The seed is DNA. Who cares about your DNA? In order to be a child of Abraham, you have to accept me as the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So you don't do that. Well, then you're not you're not Hebrews anymore. That is the whole point. The Talmudic religion that eventually eventuated in terms like Judeo Christianity and stuff like that is not the religion of the Old Testament. It is a deformation of the Torah for carnal and political purposes and ideological purposes. Mm. We are the children of Moses. We Catholics are the children of Moses. That's complicated. And a lot of people uh, prefer the Christian Zionist explanation uh, because it seems simpler, but that's not the reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So zooming back you, do you want do, if you want to talk about judeo-christianity the term it came into being in the 50s when the jews wanted to be part of american culture mm -hmm. so they came up with this term judeo-christian as a way of uh okay we're all in this fight together against nazism or communism right. or something like that okay well no it's not really that way uh it still perdures the now the main vehicle for judeo-christianity is called conservatism now and so you have uh, somebody like I just uh, it's Robbie George and his operation at Princeton. They just had a guy by the name of Stephen Smith who comes up with this. You know, there's a battle in San Diego over the crucifix. And on one side, you have uh, Jews and Christians supporting the crucifix. And on the other side, you have pagans. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's crazy. Right, have you ever heard of the ACLU? What, what do you think most of the people in the ACLU are? Okay, this he he's trying to come come up with this uh, idea, uh, this category of the mind known as conservatism. It's on bad. It's on life support now. It's mm -hmm. dying. Right. If it hasn't already died, killed by Donald Trump and Pope Francis, but it's not going to work because you're 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 just deluding people. Uh, uh, first things is like the classic, the flagship of this type of ideological attempt to keep conservatism on a, a life support system. 
So you have Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia talking about what happened when uh, the whole thing went down the drain when uh, the Supreme Court banned school prayer. Well, okay, I, I've heard that before. Well, who was responsible for that? Well, he said it was secularizing activists. Well, wait a minute. What are they? <laughs> that's a that's a category of your secularizing activist. Let's go back to Philadelphia. That's where your archbishop, Abington, is a suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, Abington versus school board. Uh, um, anyway, it doesn't matter. This, the, the Supreme Court decision was uh, took on Abington versus the Abington School Board. That's where the Supreme Court banned school prayer. Well, who was the plaintiff? It was Leo Pfeffer. He was a he was an employee of the American Jewish Committee. It was the Jews who drove public uh, who were against who filed the brief that eventually led to the banning of 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 prayer in public school. Why can't you say that? Well, because you're a conservative and you're living in a world of illusion and of uh, of uh, categories of the mind that do not correspond to categories of reality. And because of that, you're going to lose. I mean, Robbie George gets lots of money to promote this illusion. Okay, that's why he's in the game. But it's an illusion. I You're not going to win anything by doing that. Remember the whole big movement against uh, gay marriage that Robbie George orchestrated is called the Manhattan Declaration? I don't. When was this? Oh, this is before you were born. Oh, there you go. That's why I don't remember it. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it was actually, it was in the 1990s. So okay, well, I was around. Born in. But you didn't know about this. But anyway, this was Catholics and Jews uniting in evangelicals. Well, the, the lady, uh, Amy Dean, wrote an article in Tikkun magazine, which is a Jewish magazine. So no Jews are responsible for gay marriage. And we whipped Robbie George's ass after he had all of these billions of signatures for the Manhattan Declaration. We just tore him apart. Well, that's an honest assessment. Thank you, Amy, for being honest with us. But it completely destroys this illusion, the Judeo-Christian illusion that is conservatism. Mm. So going back to the West, I wanted to zoom back out again and look at it as a whole and look at it as a whole of, of our situation right now. Because we, we started off this conversation saying we're looking at a crisis and I want to be able to take <clears throat> looking at the history of who we are and use that as a tool for how we deal with this crisis. And I wanted to hear from you what you feel is the key quality or key qualities, depending on how you break them down, that the West has that we need to keep and we're on the verge of losing yes. if we don't get our act together. Right. The key quality is Logos. The, the first manifestation of Logos is speech, which is what we are engaging in right now. Right. This is this is absolutely crucial, and that's obviously why people are being deplatformed because the oligarchs do not want this to happen. They don't want discussions, honest discussions like this to take place. The difference between Greece and Persia is logos, is discussion. So Aristotle said, if you have to work for a living, you can't be a citizen of Athens because we have to attend meetings. All the citizens of Athens do is attend meetings and they discuss things. So are we going to go to war with Persia? Well, let's talk about it. Let's weigh the pros and cons. That's what the Greeks did. Mm -hmm. The Persian, when the Persian uh, emperor, the king of Persia says, 
I wonder if I should go to war. I should go to war with Greece. I had a dream last night. And the dream said that I would win. And so he says, well, I'll keep that in mind. Then he, I had another dream. It was the same dream. This means I should go to war with Greece. Well, he lost. That was the difference between Greece and Persia. That's the difference. So we have to have this discussion. That's why they're banning this discussion. And we have to be able to articulate our position independently of all the brainwashing that is being uh, forced on us by the big tech and, and the, the media giants. And that's going to come down to the, the crucial battle line right now is representative government. This is the ditch that we're in. This is the last ditch. And if we don't get this straight, the battle's over. Because uh-huh. we'll all end up as slaves. So we have to be able to say, uh, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Benioff, who elected you to rule over Indiana? I'm talking about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This guy, head of Salesforce, flies in. You have to overturn your law. That was five years ago. Or wait a minute, Mr. Fauci, who elected you to rule over our lives? Who elected you to rule over us? Or on a, a smaller level, I had the same feeling. I was in, uh, in uh, New York City. Uh, someone's playing EWTN, and there's Richard John Newhouse, the late Richard John Newhouse, bloviating for like hours on end about Ratzinger this and blah, 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 blah. And suddenly I, I said, wait a minute. Who made this guy our leader? Who made this man? He's not a bishop. He's he just he's a convert from Lutheranism. Who made this man our leader? And then I said, well, I know who it was. It was Midge Dechter and Norman Podaris, two Jews who basically bankrolled first things, got the whole thing going. And so he's a representative of the oligarchs, the Jews in this point, but the oligarchs. It's money that is basically ruling us. That is the fundamental issue of our age. Are we going to be able to take back government so that it represents the will of the people instead of the will of the oligarchs who pay the money to get these people to Washington? And as soon as they get to Washington, all they do is represent oligarchic interests, like the Israel lobby. Or, again, uh, the crucial issue in Virginia, like a big victory for, I think, uh, the people of Virginia, uh, because it was classic culture wars. Okay, these lady, a lady is objecting to homosexual pedophilic propaganda being put in the school, uh, school uh, library. And uh, the governor, uh, candidate for governor, McAuliffe, says parents should have no say in what goes on in the schools. Well, this was golden. And it was the great. Republicans jumped on it. Yeah, I mean, it was awful, but it was great because it was awful. Yes. Yeah, so they jumped on it and they won. Now, okay. We, we wake up, all the champagne corks were popping at Fox News when that happened. And then we wake up the next day and we're a little bit hungover and we suddenly realize, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Youngkin uh, used to work for the Carlisle Group. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that the user? Aren't they the, uh, the, the uh, vulture capitalists that take over companies and burden them with debt? And then it turns out in May, he issued a statement saying, uh, oh, this is what I'm going to do to combat anti-Semitism in Virginia. Well, wait a minute. So now we're a little disappointed, but you see the battle lines are still drawn here. 
Yes. Do we have the right to elect representatives who will represent our interests? COVID is a clear violation of this. COVID is an attack on representative government by people who have been planning a, a biowarfare attack for years. We have to face up to that fact. We have to first articulate the reality of the situation, and then we have to mobilize to take the government back from these uh, terrorists. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And you also mentioned something a little earlier when you were comparing, uh, I think it was the Roman version of of uh, how how things were run, which is essentially you you enslave everybody and you, you, you've got a class up top that enslaves everybody on the bottom, is we've on this show have, have had discussions with a, a group called the, the Center for Self-Governance that has pointed out that our rulers as nebulous or, you know, or not uh, Jews or Illuminati or New World Order, whatever we're calling them. Uh, there's a massive push to get us more looking like the Empire of Rome or Plato's descript, uh, Plato's Republic in, in the sense that you've got a group of people who make the rules and everybody else follows them. And there's no divisions up in, in the layers of government and the COVID thing. Now, I personally think this is premeditated, like you just said, but whether it is or not, what we're seeing is the melting of these lines between layers of government. And I think one of the, one of the clearest examples that we've seen so far is the states of emergency by all the governors, 49 out of 50 of the governors, South Dakota being the only only one, where the the executive branch is encroaching as much as it possibly can to grab the legislative power. And it's melting that line in between executive and legislative and, and basically conglomerating it under under one roof, which going back to what, what you said, the, the fight now is about representative government. If that thing gets conglomerated, well, there, you know, <laughs> forget the legislature then because we don't need it anymore because the executive just took it over. And so I, I completely agree with you. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is the fight right now. And the, the, the COVID is being brought in as this, oh, my God, we have to freak out about everything right now. Give all the power to that guy right there. And then he'll make he'll, he'll make everything fine. Just wear your mask and don't ask any questions. Yeah. Right. So, um, yes, I, I again, thank you for bringing that up because I, I, I completely agree that uh, the, the, the battle now is for is for representative government. And I, I, I like. I like also bringing up logos the way the way that you brought it up, and I, and I, I haven't heard it described any other way than than no one's described right. it like so, you have, so you, right? So you yeah. you can have you can have a kind of uh, immature understanding of representative government, and I think that's what you saw at the Capitol demonstration. Now I'm not. I, I, you you talking about January sixth? Yeah, I'm talking about yeah. January sixth. I'm talking about that. I mean, I talked to people who were there. And there are people there who are saying, this is our government. You know what I mean? We elect these people. We have a right. Right. Well, I, wait a minute. That, that's not. That's, that's not, you, well, not what it is. Yeah. <laughs> first of all, that's not what it is at all right now. But you've got an unrealistic notion of what government should be because there's this libertarian spirit that just spreads throughout the, the country, which says the government is evil. Thanks for libertarianism for that. Thanks to libertarianism. We have no one defending us. We are helpless vis-a-vis -vis the oligarchs because they have discredited government. So it's not going to be you're you're not going to be able to live without government. You know, you think you're going to the solution is buy a gun and go to Idaho 
Well, see how long that lasts. Yeah, you'll get just get steamrolled really easily when they decide yeah, to steamroll you'll, you. You'll end up like you probably end, if they if they go after you, you'll end up like Randy Weaver. He tried that and didn't work. So we have to be able to have some type of understanding of the hierarchy that is appropriate to logos finding expression in government. And so that begins with something like the parish, a local community, uh, understanding how that's been under assault, doing your best to somehow resurrect it. And I think that's what we're actually seeing. I mean, this, this was school boards meetings in Virginia that basically toppled the Democratic Party there. It was school board meetings. That's as basic as you get. It was these ladies. It's primarily ladies who go to these things. And because they are defending their children, and that's what, what it came down to. So that's that was a successful uh, a successful counter move. The question is, are the Republicans going to betray these ladies? Because Republicans have a, a history of betraying ladies. Uh, the classic example being Phyllis Schlafly, the lady who would always mobilize for the Republicans. They'd always turn on her uh, at the end. That's that's the question. Are the Republicans honest or are they just interested in power? Are these people like, I mean, DeSantis and Abbott, you know, DeSantis is leading the charge on COVID. There's no question about it. He's leading the charge against Biden, against Washington's overreach and so on and so forth. I, I have that's what we have to do. The problem is that DeSantis has you know passed a law saying it's illegal to criticize Israel. How far is that going to go? Mm-hmm. Is is that going to are they going to yank that chain uh, with him? I don't know. It's all up in the air right now. But that's the battle. That's the battle. Well, Doctor Jones, uh, that covers everything that I wanted to ask you about. Was it was there anything else based on what we discussed that you wanted to add no, in before is, we before we finished up? Great, great discussion. This is I said this is the basis. You have to have the ability to discuss these issues openly. If you don't, that's that's why they're trying to deplatform all of us. We have to fight against this. This is the basis. This is the basis of everything else. This is the, this is logos in action, mm-hmm. where people get together and talk and create a consciousness that will allow them to resist the lies of the oligarchs. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you again, Doctor Jones. Uh, that was. Well, it was it was great to to to, to uh, get it directly for the first time. Um, every time uh, I hear from you again, it's it's always a fascinating learning experience. Um, you're welcome to come back on anytime, and um, it's my pleasure to come back on. Awesome. So um, thank you again, and thank everybody for watching, and we'll see you soon. 